Section 50 of Egypt, Africa, and Arabia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by April 6090, California, United States of America. The World Story, Volume 3, Egypt, Africa, and Arabia. Edited by Eva March Chapin. Section 50. The Cutting of the Aqueduct by Gustav Flaubert. In 241 BC, the First Punic War came to an end, but Carthage was by no means free from her troubles. The greater part of her soldiers were barbarians, lured from distant lands by the promise of pay and of pillage. As her treasury was exhausted, she proposed to the troops that only a part of what was due them should be paid. Naturally, the mercenaries or hired soldiers rebelled. They chose Spendius and Matho for their commanders, and induced some of the native African tribes to join them. For a time Carthage was in extreme danger, and it was not until after three years of warfare that Himilcar succeeded in overpowering them. The Editor The Carthaginians rejoined their lines and entered the enormous gate that resoundingly reclosed behind them. It did not yield. The barbarians plunged and battered against it, and during the lapse of some minutes the entire length of the army presented an oscillation that became gentler and gentler, and at last entirely subsided. The Carthaginians, having stationed soldiers on the aqueduct, commenced hurling stones, balls, and beams. Spendius averred that it was useless to persist. Therefore they pitched their encampment at a greater distance from the walls fully resolved to besiege Carthage. Meanwhile, the rumor of the war had traveled beyond the confines of the Punic dominion, and from the pillars of Hercules, as far as the other side of Cyrene, the herdsmen guarding their herds dreamed of it, and the caravans talked about it at night in the starlight. This grand Carthage, mistress of the sea, splendid as the sun, awful as a god, had found men who dared to attack her. Even her downfall had frequently been reported and all had believed it probable, as all were longing for it. The subject peoples, tributary villages, allied provinces, and independent tribes, those who cursed her for her tyranny, or who were jealous of her power, or who coveted her wealth, the bravest had very quickly joined themselves to the mercenaries. The defeat at the Makar, however, prevented all the others. Finally, they regained confidence, and gradually making advances had come nearer and now the inhabitants of the eastern regions had posted themselves in the sand hills of hypia on the other side of the gulf as soon as the barbarians appeared they showed themselves these were not the libyans from the environs of carthage who had for a long time constituted the third army but the nomads from the plateau of barca bandits of the cape of fiscus and the promontory of dern and those from Fazania and from Marmarica. They had crossed the desert, sustaining themselves by drinking from the brackish wells built of camel's bones. The Zuasis, covered with ostrich plumes, had come in their quadrigia, the Garamantes, masked with black veils, riding far back on their painted mares. Others mounted on asses, on onagers, on zebras, or on buffaloes, and some dragged the roofs of their cabins, shaped like a shallop, with their families and idols there were also ammonians whose limbs were wrinkled by the hot water of the fountains 
the Atrontes, who cursed the sun, the Troglodytes, who laughingly interred their dead under branches of trees, and the hideous Ozians, who ate locusts, the Acrimacades, who ate lice, and the Gysantes, painted over with vermilion, and who ate monkeys, all were ranged on the seacoast in a great straight line. They advanced in succession, like whirlwinds of sand raised by the wind. In the middle of the isthmus their crowd stopped. The mercenaries established before them near the walls did not wish to move. Then from the direction of Ariana appeared men from the west, the people of Numidia. For, in fact, Nar Havas only governed the Massilians, and furthermore, a custom permitting them, after a reverse, to abandon their king. They had reassembled on the Zanius. Then at their first movement, Hamilcar had made, they had crossed it. First were seen running all the hunters of the Maelthet Ball, and of the Garafos, clothed in lions' skins, and driving with the shafts of their spikes, little, thin horses with long manes. Following these came the Gaetulians, encased in breastplates made of serpents' skin, even the Ferugians wearing tall crowns made of wax and resin, these were followed by the Conians, Macars, and Tilibers, each holding two javelins and a round buckler of hippopotamus hide. They halted at the base of the catacombs, near the first pools of the lagoon. But when the Libyans had moved off, on the ground that they had occupied, there appeared, like a cloud, lying flat on the earth, a multitude of negroes. They had come from White Harush and Black Harush, from the desert of Agula, and even from the vast country of Gazimba which was four months' journey to the south of the Garamantes, and even more distant. In spite of their redwood ornaments, the filth on their black skins made them resemble mulberries that had been rolled a long time in the dust. They wore breeches made from the fibers of bark, tunics of dried grass, and on their heads the muzzles of wild animals. They howled like wolves, shaking triangles ornamented with dangling rings, and brandished cowtails on the end of a pole by way of banners. Behind the Numidians, the Marusians, and the Gatulians thronged the yellow men who were scattered over the country beyond Tagir in the cedar forest. Catskin quivers beat over their shoulders, and they led in leashes enormous dogs as tall as asses, which never barked. In short, as if Africa had not sufficiently emptied itself, and in order to gather up more furies, they had even recruited the lowest races. In the rear of all the others could be seen men with profiles of animals, who laughed in an idiotic manner. Wretches ravaged by hideous diseases, deformed pygmies, mulattoes of doubtful sex, albinos blinking their pink eyes in the sunlight, all stammering unintelligible sounds, and putting a finger in their mouths to signify their hunger. The medley of weapons was not less confused than the people, or their apparel. Not a deadly invention that could not be found here from wooden poignards, stone battle-axes, ivory tridents, two long sabres toothed like saws, slender and made of a pliable sheet of copper. They wielded cutlasses divided in many branches, like antelopes' horns. They carried bill-hooks attached to cords, iron triangles, clubs and stilettos. The Ethiopians of Bombotus hid in their hair tiny poisoned darts. Many had brought stones and sacks, Others, who were empty-handed, gnashed their teeth. A continual surging swayed this multitude. Dromedaries daubed with tar like the hulls of ships upset the women, who carried their children on their hips. Provisions were spilled out of their baskets, 
and in walking one stepped on morsels of rock salt packages of gum rotten dates and guru nuts sometimes on a bosom alive with burman could be seen suspended from a fine cord a diamond a fabulous gem worth an entire empire which satraps had coveted the majority of these people did not know what they desired a fascination a curiosity impelled them the nomads who had never seen a city were frightened by the vast shadows cast by the massive walls now the isthmus was obscured by this multitude of men and the long span of tents resembling cabins during an inundation spread out to the first lines of the other barbarians who were streaming with metal and symmetrically established on the two flanks of the aqueduct the carthaginians were still in terror of those who had already arrived when they perceived coming straight towards the city like monsters and like edifices with their shafts weapons cordage articulations capitals and carapaces the engines sent for the siege by the tyrian cities sixty carabalistas eighty onjers thirty scorpions fifty tolentones twelve rams and three gigantic catapults with the capacity of throwing rocks weighing fifteen talents masses of men clutched at their base pushed pulled and toiled to propel the engines that quivered and shook at each step thus they came in front of the walls but it would still require many days to complete the preparations for the siege the mercenaries forewarned by their previous defeats did not wish to risk themselves in fruitless engagements and on neither one side nor the other was there any hurry as all knew that a terrible action was about to ensue which would result either in victory or complete extermination carthage could hold out for a long time her broad walls offered a series of salient and re-entering angles an arrangement full of advantages for repelling an assault however on the side of the catacombs a portion of the wall had crumbled and during obscure nights between the disjointed blocks could be seen the lights in the dens of malqua in certain places they overlooked the top of the ramparts and here lived those who had taken for new wives the women of the mercenaries chased by matho out of the camp when the women saw again their own people their hearts melted and they waved from afar long scarves then they came in the darkness to chat with the soldiers through the rift in the walls and the grand council was apprised one morning that they had all taken flight some had crawled between the stones others more intrepid had descended by ropes spendius finally resolved to accomplish his cherished project the war by keeping him at a distance had up to the present debarred him from it and since they had returned before carthage it seemed to him that the townsmen suspected his enterprise but soon they diminished the sentinels on the aqueduct as they did not possess too many guards for the defence of the ensante during many days the former slave practised aiming arrows at the flamingos standing on the lake shore then one evening when the moon shone bright he entreated matho to have lighted during the middle of the night a huge bonfire of straw and cause all his men simultaneously to utter shrieks then taking Zarxis, he went off by the shore of the gulf in the direction of tunis when abreast of the last arches they turned back going straight towards the aqueduct as the road was exposed they advanced creeping along up to the base of the pillars the sentinels on the platform patrolled tranquilly high flames darted up clarions were sounded 
the soldiers in the watch-towers believing that it was an assault rushed toward carthage one man remained he appeared as a black figure against the dome of the sky the moonlight was behind him and his disproportionate shadow fell afar on the plain like a moving obelisk they waited until he was exactly in front of them Zarsius seized his sling but spendius stayed him actuated by prudence or ferocity and whispered no the whirring of the ball will make a noise i will do it then he strung his bow with all his might and supporting the end against his left instep took aim and the fatal arrow flew the man did not fall he disappeared if he were wounded we should hear him said spendius and he sprang fleetly up story after story as he had done the first time by the aid of the harpoon and cord and when he reached the top beside the corpse he let the cord fall the balearian fastened to it a pick and mallet and returned the trumpets no longer sounded all had subsided into perfect quiet spendius had lifted one of the stones entered the water and replaced the stone over himself estimating the distance by paces he came exactly to the spot where he had previously noticed a slanting fissure and for three hours in fact till morning he worked in a continuous furious way breathing with great difficulty through the interstices of the superior stones assailed with violent pains twenty times he believed he was dying at last a cracking was heard an enormous stone bounded on the inferior arches and rolled down to the bottom and all at once a cataract an entire river of great volume fell as from the sky into the plain the aqueduct cut in the middle was emptying itself this was the death of carthage and the victory of the barbarians in an instant the carthaginians aroused in terror appeared on the walls the housetops and all the temples the barbarians gave vent to joyous shouts danced around the vast waterfall in delirium and in the extravagance of their delight wetted their heads in the rushing water at the summit of the aqueduct a man was perceived wearing a torn brown tunic leaning over the edge his hands upon his hips gazing beneath him to the very bottom as though astonished at his own work then he stood erect traversing the horizon with a proud impressive air which seemed to say behold this is all my work applause burst from the barbarians at last the carthaginians comprehended the cause of their disaster and howled in despair spendius ran from end to end of the platform distracted by pride raising his arms like the driver of a victorious chariot in the olympian games End of section 50. This recording is in the public domain.